Last evening, it was our privilege for those of you that were here to talk about the makings of a family, identifying the oldest family tree. And the founder of that family tree, for those of you that was here or that were here last night, uh, who was the person that's the founder of the oldest family tree that we can trace? Abraham. And we saw from his illustration in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, the makings, those components, those ingredients that go into the making of a family. As we continue this focus upon family through this weekend, I want to just say that I'm honored to be a part of this, and I'm so thankful for all of your families being present. But I don't think there's any question that you as parents especially, or you as adults, or even you as young people that are aware of what's going on around you, that we live in a challenging world. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a sad day when you have, for example, a debate going on in our world about what constitutes, you know, a marriage, whether it's, a, you know, a, a man and a woman or whether it's a man and a man or a woman and a woman. That's a, that's a pretty amazing, wicked world in which we live. Or when you see the disdain for the dignity of life and the sanctity of life and the abundant practice of abortion in our world. I'm not trying to be political. Those are biblical issues that we're dealing with. And uh, that's the kind of, you know, wicked world in which we live. Probably some of you as parents have said to your, you know, children, boy, it's a, it's a whole lot worse today than when I grew up. Or grandparents have said those kinds of things to maybe grandchildren. Boy, things are so much worse today than when I grew up. And in the midst of that, we sometimes even have a sense of maybe accepting a deterioration of practice and standard because we sort of say, well, you know, it's worse today than when I grew up. And so whether it's drugs or whether it's the, you know, just the proliferation of all kinds of wickedness in our world, I don't have to enumerate it. You know that we live in a, uh, in a godless world and in a wicked world. But in the midst of all of those moments of reflection, can I just remind you that this is not the toughest time to raise a family. If we talked, excuse me, if we talked about the oldest family tree and the makings of a family is how we call that, I want to talk about now the toughest time to raise a family. The toughest time to raise a family. And if you will, I'm going to talk about the mess we face as a family. It's a messy world. It doesn't take any effort to think of messes all around us. And yet in the midst of all of that mess, can I tell you, this is not the messiest time to raise a family. And so if you're tempted to sort of maybe concede or throw in the towel or say, boy, things have gotten so bad, I don't think there's any hope. I want to give us hope in raising our families and guiding our families this morning because we can see from an illustration in the Bible when I do believe, uncontestedly, we have the toughest time to raise a family described. I'm sure many of you have already guessed when that is. But for all of us, may I just remind us that it's the day in which Noah raised a family. Noah had the toughest assignment to try and raise a family, and yet illustrates for us that it can be done in a way that gives us opportunity to describe him with some pretty noble you know, descriptions. Genesis chapter 6, if you'd turn there, please, in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 6 describes a time when Noah had to raise a family. Now, just by way of a little background, as you're turning there, when Noah lived, 
Uh, we might be inclined to describe him as, well, he's pretty early on the scenes of the pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6 isn't very far into the book of Genesis. So there might be a few thousand people around. But it was a whole lot different because the truth is we've got a whole lot more in our world. And we have a whole lot more. No, can I tell you that without being with any hint of evolution, please hear me, no hint of evolution in the midst of that setting, probably when Noah lived, the world in which he lived, planet Earth, was as populated as today's world is. Did you hear me? There were probably as many people on the planet Earth in Noah's day as there are in our world today. And so at that particular time, God sees fit to make an announcement. He says, I want to give you some advance notice. You remember, 120 years advance notice. That's pretty good advance notice. He says, in 120 years I'm going to do something, and I just want you to know I'm going to do this so you can get ready for it. Now, if you gave somebody a, a, an advance, I mean, as parents, we sometimes want our children, you do that again, and I will, you know, and we give them a little advance notice. But, or we say, you know, I'm going to be home at such and such a time, and by that we're trying to indicate, be prepared, because if I come home, I better find your jobs done, I better find the lawn mowed, I better find your room picked up, whatever. But here's 120 years advance notice that God gives to the earth. He says, in 120 years, I'm going to destroy this place. And if you don't want to be destroyed, here's what you need to do. You need to follow what I tell you to do. You see, it wasn't just a secret message to Noah. In fact, he had the privilege to be the spokesman for God. He's described in the New Testament as a preacher of righteousness. So the toughest time to raise a family was at a time when there were eventually going to only be eight righteous people on the entire planet. That's pretty amazing. More righteous people in this wooded area this morning than all of the globe. And this is just one spot. In the midst of that setting, it would have been pretty easy for Noah to say, well, I'm just going to throw in the towel. It's no use. The world has gone to the dogs. And frankly, he could have said that more truthfully than any parent this morning could say. And yet in the midst of that, we find an amazing description of how he managed the mess of the world in which he lived. The toughest time to raise a family, uncontestedly, was Noah's day. If he could do it in the toughest time, my, my challenge and my reminder to every family present this morning is we can do it during our time. This is a message of hope. How to handle the mess of our world and still have a testimony like Noah. Now, for those of you who know the story, you know Noah wasn't perfect. His family wasn't perfect. I take comfort in that as well because the truth is you might say, well, yeah, if I could have had a direct contact with God, I could do okay too. If God would talk to me out of the clouds and I could hear his voice, no, I could do... No, may, may I just say, he wasn't a perfect guy but he had a wonderful testimony of how he faced the mess of his world and did it with a testimony that gave him eligibility to get onto a boat that only righteous people could get on. And so let's look at the story, Genesis chapter 6. I'd like you to follow. I'm going to begin reading verse 5, and we'll read down through verse 13 as we see how this family had the toughest assignment to raise a family in the mess of the world in which they lived, 
and yet they have a testimony that is amazing. Genesis chapter 6, would you follow while I read verse 5 through 13? And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. You know this to be the announcement of a universal flood. That which took place, which totally encompassed this world with volumes of water, purging it from its wickedness, and preserving a family of eight at the time when the world was in the greatest dilemma that it's ever been. The mess facing our family. How do we do it? I believe that Noah's example is a great one for us. And this morning I want to just quickly give you four features. Four features in facing the mess of the world around you. Facing it with success, with hope, with an ability like Noah to resist that which that world thrust upon him. Let's look first at feature number one. We see it in verse 5. It's this. We see the degree of this mess. How bad was it? If you mark your Bible, I've marked in my Bible, and I encourage you to do the same. There are some words that describe some pretty amazing features. It says here that God saw the wickedness of man was great. That's the first word I have marked in my Bible. And that every, that's the next word I have marked. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only, that's the next word I mark, evil continually. Great, every, only, continually. Those are pretty inclusive words, don't you think? And here this passage describes the world with that kind of a, of a condition. The degree of this mess was beyond anything that we could imagine. Now, even though I don't want to suggest that things aren't tough around us, and that there aren't lots of evil conditions, can I tell you, the world in which we live does not have this description to this magnitude. So here's a situation that's worse than anything you're facing or I'm facing, and we're going to see how Noah dealt with that, how he faced the mess of his world and still had an effective family for God. The degree of this mess is greater than anything you'll face, so if he could do it, so can you. But there's a second feature that I want you to see. Not only the degree of this mess, would you note the despair over this mess? The despair is described through the vision of God's outlook. Verse 6 says, And it repented the Lord that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now the amplification that's given later in the passage, this is one of those passages where God describes it, then he deals with Noah, then he describes it again. And so you can look at verses 
11, 12, and 13, which amplify these thoughts that we see. So the despair is also described, if you will, please, in verse 12. God looked upon the earth. Behold, it was corrupt. All the flesh had corrupted his way before the earth. You know, despair is something that is describing the depth of agony that God felt over this matter. Uh, Grieving God's heart is a challenging task. Breaking the heart of God. I want to pause at this point and just ask you, do you really care what God thinks about you? We should. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, for example, that we should be careful that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the person of the Godhead. Don't grieve the Spirit of God who's in us. I used the illustration in the first service. I'll repeat it here at this point as a sort of a family illustration. When our children were younger... We have five children, and and, uh, I say this with some measure of tongue-in-cheek. We were blessed in so many ways, and so I'm exaggerating slightly. But, you know, I would say sometimes that when you have a family of five children, you don't very often get invited to somebody's house for a meal. Uh, You know, after all, you don't want to bring the whole army. You know, and so, uh, so whenever we got invited to go to somebody's house for a meal, my wife, in just due diligence, would would properly just groom our children to say, now when you get to the house, make sure you do this. I mean, we're talking about little shavers and just making sure they man- manage their manners, you know. And, and uh, so we'd give them this little pep talk and we'd get to the house and we'd, you know, we wanted to make sure we did well because we wanted to potentially get back at the house again, you know. Maybe they'd invite us back if we were good the first time. And more than once, I can remember, as we would leave that setting where we would have had this wonderful meal time with a family as guests, We'd get back into the car, and as we're driving back to our house, I would hear this little timid voice in one of the back seats. We usually had vans with a family of five, and so it was either the third seat or the second seat. And a little timid voice in in the sort of the silence of riding home would say, Mama, were we good? Daddy, were we good? Now, they weren't necessarily asking because uh, they wanted to go back to the house for a meal. That was my thought. They were asking primarily because they were concerned whether or not they had grieved us as parents. And probably with some ulterior motive too. Because they knew if they had grieved us as parents, there might be a sequel when we got home. (laughs) A segue service, we call it. (laughs) Now, you laugh with identity because you've either been the victim of that kind of thing in a family or you've done it to a family. But can I just ask you, Do you care if you grieve the heart of God? This passage says that it repented the Lord. And theologians try and, you know, banter about what it means. Could God have changed his mind? Doesn't God know everything? Yes, God knew everything. He's just putting it in human language for us to understand what he experienced as he looked down upon the world he had created and how man and his sinful behavior had made a mess of it. And so in human language, to help us understand his heart, it says he was grieved, the despair over this mess. Now, I, I emphasize this point as we talk about the mess of the families you know, the, that we face as families, is to say this, you know what? It's easy for us to get used to the sin around us, gang. It really is. We can get conditioned to it. We see it so much, we don't even be, you know, we're not even affected by it anymore. We might even laugh at the same kind of stories or find ourselves entering into some of it. Can I just tell you, we should increasingly, as we become more godly, be more and more uncomfortable in this world. You understand what I mean? As we become more godly, 
We should be grieved with what grieves God's heart. And we should not find ourselves entering into the, maybe the laughter over the, you know, some kind of a, a suggestive statement or some kind of a questionable story or some kind of a situation that is really built upon a sinful implication. I'm not trying to make us some kind of a, you know, puristic and distant and, you know, we're sort of stodgy about life. No, I think Christians are the ones who can really enjoy life. The Bible says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Our joy can be full when we really have godliness. And so here the heart of God was grieved. Despair over the mess. That's the second feature that Noah's family faced. The degree, it was total. Eventually down to just eight righteous people in a globe populated as much as today's globe. Despair over that. Grieving the heart of God. But now third feature. We see a decree. A decree that's going to be issued. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, here's his decree. I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, the creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I've made them. This particular decree was going to bring about a universal destruction of the entirety of this globe. Now, some have asked, why destroy all the animals? Why punish all of the creative work? I truly believe that some of it was indicative of even the abusive activities that godless men had been entering into in that regard. We do know that God preserved a sampling of all of his creatures on the, on the ark, and he sustained eight righteous souls so that it wasn't a recreative work of God after the flood. It was just the repopulization of the world after he had purged it through that thorough washing experience. But I do know this. The decree of God was judgment for sin. Can I just pause and say at this point that in this world that seems to be getting away with all kinds of wickedness, God will judge it. God will judge it. And may I just say, it may be with some measure of action of judgment while we're still on planet Earth. Now, I'm well convinced in my theological understanding that as a church, we will not be taken through the tribulation period, as the Bible describes the Great Tribulation. That particular event is something that is Jewish in its focus. It has nothing to do with the church. So I believe without any reservation or without any doubt, the church will be raptured before that tribulation. But in the meantime, can I tell you, that doesn't prevent areas of of real judgment and and really chastening to take place on, on this particular planet while we're still here. I think it's serious stuff, sin is. And we do well to warn people around us that God's judgment is not something to be trivially treated, lightly treated. You know, as a parent, we do well to, to advise our children. You know, to, to, to live a careless, sinful life is a pretty risky thing. In fact, you know what? The Bible says it this way. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And you know, that's given to Christians, not to lost people. So we need to be careful how we treat our behavior and the sinfulness of our world. 
God, help us to recognize that we have the privilege to live godly in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we're to shine as lights in the world. The decree of God is judgment. But that brings us to our fourth and final feature. We've seen the, you know, the, the degree of it. It was total. The despair over it. God's heart was grieved. The decree of this mess. God's going to bring judgment. But now, number four. And this is really where the bulk of our ammo comes in helping us live like Noah did. It's the defense. The defense for this mess we live in. How do we defend how we should live? I believe that Noah gives us a great defense strategy here. Verses 8 and 9 is where we see it. If you'll look at it, please. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. I want to quickly give you five defense mechanisms that you can exercise, I can exercise, as we seek to be Noah-like families in a messy world. These five defense strategies work, I can promise you. Noah shows it to us. First off, defense strategy number one is we must reject this mess. We must reject it. I see that from the little word but in this passage. You see, this whole description of wickedness is going on, and then there's this arresting alteration, but... You see, that particular description is showing not an accommodation, not a compromise, not an acceptance, not a conditioning. It's a rejection of the wickedness of his day. You see, I think we should with boldness say, I'm opposed to, and name sin. I don't need to name all the sins. I mean, I could name a certain list and you could name a certain list. But can I tell you, we should with boldness say, I reject So we should demonstrate that in our own personal lives. We should demonstrate that in our conversations in a tasteful but a very unashamed way. We should demonstrate that in the way that we go about living in the world of opportunities, whether it's the way that we, you know, try and maintain a testimony in our, in our neighborhood. You know, there ought to be a difference. People ought to be able to look at your household and say, that house is different. Not because of the color of the paint or because of the type of shrubs or because of some you know, big placard on the front door. No, because they see a different lifestyle in that family. You know, one of the nicest things that your neighborhood can say is, you know, on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday night or on a Wednesday, whatever, you know, when you have a church, I can say, oh, yeah, they're not home. They go to church. You know what? That's a simple way. That's a great way to show that you're a different. You're rejecting this world that is indulgently driven by its pleasures and its own indulgences. We ought to say, but, regularly. Or in your home, you know, there are times when, you know, you know, children say, well, you know, all my friends are doing this. All my friends are going here. All my friends are watching this. You could say, but, and announce, we're different. We reject that kind of life. Oh, God, help us to have no ache, boldness, to reject this compromising world. You know, that sounds maybe a little antagonistic, a little old-fashioned, maybe a little controversial. Can I just tell you? Just remember, it boiled down to eight righteous souls who got on the boat and the rest went down the tubes. You see, we have a choice. We can stand for God in this mess and face it with a defense mechanism that says, 
I reject it. I reject it. But there's a second defense strategy. Not only reject this mess, but number two, would you note, receive is the second word. Receive. Verse 6 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This finding grace is a wonderful illustration of something he received. He received. You see, it wasn't by his own merit. It wasn't because Noah was some kind of a really disciplined person. I'm not suggesting he wasn't disciplined, but it wasn't his discipline that got him on the boat. It wasn't his, you know, you know, family tree that got him on the boat. We've talked about a family tree. This is pre-Abraham, so he couldn't claim any Jewish blood. <laughs> Didn't exist. You know. There was no, you know, it wasn't his occupation. We don't really know what his occupation was. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. And that really is an announcer of righteousness. He obviously had some carpentry skills, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if he had any nautical skills. I mean, obviously, it was a landlocked boat until God brought the water. I don't know if he had any you know, experience with you know, getting a boat. I, I really don't know, it, it, but I do know this. It wasn't any of those things that gave him a standing with God. It was the grace of God. Can I just say that the defense that you and I need to face this messy world starts with, first of all, the grace of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't know you personally, so I don't know if every person here has trusted Christ as Savior, but if you've never experienced the grace of God in salvation, you'll never have the kind of family God wants you to have until you do. You need to be saved. Or as a young person, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, can I just tell you, in the future you'll never have the kind of family that God wants you to have unless you've trusted Christ as Savior. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But can I tell you also, the grace that brings us salvation also is the grace that causes us to grow. Peter says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we grow in grace, we're growing in the spiritual behavior that God wants us to exemplify and demonstrate as we live on planet Earth. Are you growing in grace? You see, a family that has found grace has this wonderful receiving privilege of salvation and spiritual development, growing in the Lord. That's the second strategy to face the mess of the world around us. Reject the mess, receive the grace, but now number three feature. Look at verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. He was a just man. Number three strategy. Be renewed. Renewed. The word just here has the idea of someone who lives righteously or has the characteristics of godliness. I, I think sometimes that we're a little you know, self-conscious about this because we think it might be a little vain. But the, the truth is, we should be living in such a way as to demonstrate godliness to people around us. You know, we're told in the Bible we're to do all to the glory of God whether you eat, drink, or camp out. It's not there, but I'm adding that, okay? Whether you eat, drink, or camp out, do all to the glory of God. Now, how do you, how do you eat to the glory of God? We're going to eat hot dogs and hamburgers here in a little bit. I hope. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm hungry, and, and I will finish here soon. Okay. How do we eat to the glory of God? 
Well, I, I, I really do believe that there are some obvious ways. I, I think that we should unashamedly be thankful for what God's given to us, so we shouldn't be afraid to pray boldly but very properly for the food we receive. I think that's a good way to, to do it to the glory of God. But, you know, here's a little phrase that I've developed through the course of the years. To do something to the glory of God means I live in such a way as to remind people of God by my presence. I live in such a way as to remind people of God by my presence. Now, here's the way to measure that. Has anybody recently thought about God because they saw you? That's a good thought, huh? I should live so that people think about God when they see me. And that's what Noah did. He was a convicting presence. And that doesn't mean people are going to rush to you and get saved. Not a person trusted Christ or trusted God's way. I know it's Old Testament, but nobody but Noah's family accepted his message. But he was described as a godly man, a just man. Are you renewed? The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. All things become new. We should be different once we've trusted Christ as Savior. There ought to be a difference. If you're trying to sort of walk this tightrope of, you know, being acceptable to the world and sort of, you know, being, you know, in style with the world and in keeping with the world, I'm not trying to, you know, give you some kind of an admonition to be so isolated that you stand out with your oddity, but I'm telling you this, we should be different. And if we're not, we're not godly. Because guess what? This world is corrupt. God isn't like this world. And so Noah was renewed. That's what gave him strategy to face the mess of his world. He rejected. He received. He was renewed. But then number four strategy. We see here, verse 9 says, he was perfect in his generations. Now, please know that's not describing sinlessness. It's really describing genuineness. He was genuinely spiritual. It wasn't some superficial thing. It wasn't just something that was you know, on the surface. He was for real. One of my joys in working with young people through all my life. My wife and I started with youth ministries and I pastored for a time but then returned immediately to youth activities and these 30 years at Appalachian Bible College have been surrounded with young people. And can I tell you, one of the things I've observed in, in being around young people through the years is this. They can spot a phony sooner than anybody. They really can. They can see somebody who's just you know, sort of putting on a front. And I think that's one of the insights that God has given often to young people. That's why it's so important for us as parents, for example, to be for real. Not just what we are when we're in you know, this kind of a church gathering setting, but when we're at home or wherever, to be for real. Genuine. And that's what Noah did with his family. He was perfect. It says he was with sincerity, genuineness with his family. If you will, the word I want you to remember is he reproduced himself well. He reproduced. In the midst of that mess, here's the, here's the, here's the amazing thing. He raised three godly sons. Isn't that great? Wow. I mean, sometimes we sort of look at sons as a little tougher to make godly. I don't think that's right, but I just, you know, some people say, well, you know, it's really, really tougher. And you young men, let me just tell you something. That's no excuse for you to be something that, you know, no. I don't believe that. But, you know, here's three sons. And I, and I like to think, what it, would have, what it would have been like to have been the son of Noah? Some of you young people think that you've got a real tough task because your parents or something. 
You ain't seen nothing. How would you have liked to have been Noah's son or daughter? That'd have been a pretty tough thing. You're the you're the mocking you know of the whole community. You've got this huge construction project in front of your house. A boat. When there never been rain yet, remember that never once it had rained, and we're building a boat out in the middle here, uh, the size of a football field. That's what it was. So here's a boat the size of a football field in your front yard. And and you know your friends see you, and my, you know you you haven't had anything to be made fun of, until you've been the son of Noah. I can just hear him as he's working on the project someday, and he says, "Oh Shem, uh, I forgot. I need some more nails. Would you go down to the you know the local hardware store? Go down to Lowe's and pick up some nails for me." And so he goes to Lowe's, and and they say, "What account is this on?" Uh, this is Noah's account. Oh yeah, yeah, that fool. Yeah, we're getting lots of business out of him these days. <laughs> What a jerk, you know. I don't know if those kinds of things went on, but I don't think it's un- unbelievable to think here's a guy and yet he was able to be perfect in his generations. And then here's the thing that also amazes me. In the midst of that wicked world, he found three righteous wives for his sons. That's pretty amazing. And as I mentioned in the earlier service, you think you've got problems with your in-laws? How would you have liked to have been the daughter-in-law of Noah? I mean, marry into that family. Boy, did I really have a, you know. I, I can just see them say, 18 and I'm out of here. <laughs> no, I'm telling you. They had learned godliness from Noah. Let me ask you, are you reproducing yourself godly-wise in the lives of those around you? Noah did. He faced the mess of his world by rejecting, by receiving, by renewing, by reproducing, and then finally, by relying. Number five, he walked with God. He walked with God. That's a phrase that is just rich with meaning that I'll not develop this morning. But stop to ponder. When you walk with somebody, guess what? The person you're walking with gives the directions where you're going to go. God didn't walk with Noah. Noah walked with God. Okay? So God was given the orders. Furthermore, it's progress. You're not static, so you're growing. He walked with God. You're moving. Furthermore, it's an act of trust. You know, when you walk, you are using steps that require faith because as you put one foot out, you're trusting the foot to hold you while you lift the other foot forward. It's a walk of faith. He walked with God. It's a companionship. It's keeping in time with Him. It's with God. It's not behind Him or in front of Him. You see, he relied upon God. Can I tell you, that's the key to this whole mess business that we face. Do you rely upon God to help you? He walked with God. What a great description. This morning, I hope that you'll be encouraged. There is hope. It's a great day to have a family. In fact, you've got so many people around you helping with the family, you're you're blessed. You really are. So how do we face the mess of our world? We look at the guy who had the toughest time facing the mess of his world and see what he did. He recognized that with God's help, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have great hope with your family. You can do it. You can do it. Noah proved in the toughest time it could be done. Each of us in the day in which we live can do it with God's help. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to rely upon you. Help us to walk with you. Thank you for these dear families and the privilege we have to come apart in this setting and just be reminded of the privilege that we have that even in the the mess of our world, we can have godly families. I pray your blessing upon each home, each individual. May there be a commitment on our hearts today that with God's help, we're going to follow in the steps of a Noah who in the midst of his world and the mess of his world was described as one who walked with God. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name.